5 through 25. I invite you to stand with me in the reading of God's Word, if you are able. In the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife, Elizabeth, was also a descendant of Aaron. Both of them were upright in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commandments and regulations blamelessly. But they had no children because Elizabeth was barren and they were both well along in years. Once when Zechariah's division was on duty and he was serving as priest before God, he was chosen by lot according to the custom of the priesthood to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And when the time for the burning of incense came, all the assembled worshipers were praying outside. Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was startled and was gripped with fear. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son, and you're to give him the name John. He will be a joy and delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or other fermented drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from birth. Many of the people of Israel will he bring back to the Lord their God. And he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the father to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Zechariah asked the angel, How can I be sure of this? I'm an old man and my wife is well along in years. The angel answered, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God and I have been sent to speak to you and to tell you this good news. And now you will be silent and not be able to speak until the day this happens because you did not believe my words, which will come true at their proper time. Meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah and wondering why he stayed so long in the temple. When he came out, He could not speak to them. They realized he'd seen a vision in the temple, for he kept making signs to them, but remained unable to speak. When his time of service was completed, he returned home. After this, his wife, Elizabeth, became pregnant and for five months remained in seclusion. The Lord has done this for me, she said. In these days, he has shown his favor and taken away my disgrace among the people. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. I think my voice is going here too, so I'm not sure I believed God about that. Anyhow, um, uh, let's pray together. Gracious Lord, as we spend time in these words of yours from the Gospel of Luke, we pray that uh, your Holy Spirit will do his work in our hearts and in our minds, that we would ourselves be prepared for your coming. It is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You know, I uh, read the story the other day of uh, a man named Barry and his wife Hannah. They were an older married couple who were sitting on the couch watching TV. On, On the show, they were speaking about how to prepare in case of death. Honey, said Barry, turning to his wife with a serious expression. I want you to promise me that if there ever comes that time, that moment, 
where I am dependent on just machines and bottled fluid, that you will make sure to put an end to it. No problem, hon, said Hannah, and she promptly got up, turned off the TV, and poured his beer down the drain. I'd like to talk about preparation this morning. Preparation for our lives, for the coming of Christ. You know, this is the first Sunday of Advent. And so uh, I think it's important to talk about preparation. For each of us to ask ourselves once again what it means to be prepared for the coming of the Messiah into our lives. How to prepare for this season and what this season means. How do we ask the Lord to prepare our hearts and minds for this season and everything that it teaches us? I'd like us to take this morning and begin with this Gospel of Luke in this, uh, in this passage as he talks about preparation. That's the main theme. Luke starts out by rooting us in history. And by doing so, he makes it clear that he is presenting events that happened in the reality of space and time. In fact, he writes this section in a very Old Testament historical style. He tells us the events that he is recording happened during the time of Herod the Great, who we know from other histories ruled from 37 B.C. to 4 B.C. Herod was commissioned by Mark Antony in 40 B.C., returning to Judea three years later to build up the nation as a sort of a vassal state that paid homage to the great nation of Rome. And it's near the end of, this, of his reign, somewhere around 5 to 4 B.C., when the angel comes to make this announcement to Zechariah. So right from the get-go, we are being taught an important theme. And it has to do with the fact that God is sovereign. He, the God has a plan. He has a plan that directs the future and history of humanity. He directs the business of humans, as you will, as if, if you will. And he has a plan to restore his relationship to humanity. In his goodness, God picks this moment, an important moment in the career of Zechariah to make his divine move. From the Jewish historian Josephus, we know that there were 24 divisions in the priesthood at this time. A priesthood that consisted of about 18,000 priests. And that Zechariah was a member of one of them. More specifically, he was a member of the Eighth Order, the Order of Abijah. We also know from other Jewish histories that a, a priest only officiated at the sacrifices one time in his life, and that he would be selected by the drawing of lots, as we see recorded here. So this is Zechariah's one and only time, and it wasn't by chance that he is here at this moment of time. The setting is one of two times that uh, happened during daily prayers set aside at the temple. At, by our measure, it would be at 9 a.m. and at 3 p.m., and then it's at that time that he had come to be, that had, that particular time had come to be known as the time of the perpetual offering, which I don't I don't think is by any chance either. Uh, if you have your Bibles and you'd like to turn with me to Exodus 29, 
verses 38 through 42, we find here foreshadowed and predicted the event that would take place with Zechariah. And there we read these words. This is what you are to offer on the altar regularly each day. Two lambs, a year old, offer one in the morning and the other at twilight. With the first lamb, offer a tenth of an ephah of the finest flour mixed with a quarter of a hin of oil from pressed olives and a quarter of a hin of wine as a drink offering. Sacrifice the other lamb at twilight with the same grain offering and its drink offering, just like in the morning. A pleasing aroma, a food offering presented to the Lord. And then here's a key passage. For the generations to come, this burnt offering is to be made regularly at the entrance to the tent of meeting before the Lord. There I will meet you and speak to you. And the angel appears as Zechariah places the incense on the altar. And it's at that crucial moment that God begins to work in a fresh way to redeem humans by revealing His sending of the forerunner of the one who would take away the sins of the world. So uh, if you like to keep notes, here is point one on your outline that you'll find in the middle of your bulletin. God in His sovereignty picked just the right moment of worship when people recognize their own need for cleansing from sin. See, God picked just the moment when the fragrant scent of the offering for the sins of God's people was being offered up to announce the coming of the one who would take away the sins of the world. Now, the encounter with the angel produces terror in Zechariah. It's a very strong term here. And it seems to be a common human response throughout the Old Testament. After comforting Zechariah, the angel announces why he has come. His name, Gabriel, which means God is my hero. God has come. The hero has come just at the right time. His announcement is a lot like the announcements of births to other formerly barren wives or announcements of a special child that God would be calling out for a special purpose. We see this in Genesis, don't we, with Abraham and Sarai, who is quite old and has never had children. We see it also in the book of Judges with Zorah and Manoah and the birth of their son Samson. See, God is in effect telling all of Israel that he has renewed his work among his people. God, again, is active in, this, in the life of his people in a very special way. God is sovereign. God is active. And God is indeed Zechariah's hero and ours. John the baptizer, you uh, noticed I said baptizer, not Baptist. He wasn't Baptist. Baptists weren't around yet, okay? John the baptizer will have a special place here in, in God's plan. He will be a great prophet. And in preparation for his ministry, he'll live an ascetic lifestyle. Like many who took vows to show their devotion to God and to God's people, he won't drink strong alcohol. In other words, he'll have a life of special dedication to God that God might give him greater guidance through the Holy Spirit. 
You know, uh, Paul later writes uh, these words to the Ephesians. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Holy Spirit. See, as disciples of Jesus, we're also called to devotion to the Lord, to reject drunkenness while embracing and pursuing a life that is guided by the Holy Spirit. John is called to a life that avoids even the appearance that anything other than the Holy Spirit is directing him. This is his call. And it's uh, not unsimilar to ours as we prepare our hearts to hear once again the Advent message of the coming of the Savior. See, John will go on before the Lord in the spirit of power of Elijah, as Luke tells us here. And he will bring back God's people to the Lord their God. There's a clear connection here, an echo, if you will, of uh, the prophet Malachi, chapter 3, verse 1. I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord. And then in Malachi chapter 4, verse 5, See, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. Going before the Lord means that John is a prophet guided by God and communicating the will of God in restoration and in fulfillment of God's promises. God Himself indeed will be coming. The second person of the Trinity will be coming and John will pave the way for Him. And the key aspect to John's message will be to make ready a people. To make ready a people. This is, uh, of course, a reference to John's message of the foundational need for repentance. How do you make ready a people? Well, number one, they need to repent. And this is point two on your outline. John's message in baptism is that of repentance and spiritual cleansing that people might be reconciled to God. See, God's calling on John is to proclaim a message that people must be prepared for the coming of the Lord. And to properly respond to God, it always begins with repentance. It always begins with confession of our sinful hearts. Our hearts are prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. John was also to proclaim reconciliation within families. Do you see that here? Sons and fathers being reconciled. Now, uh, as I was reading that, I was reminded of a Spanish story of a father and son who had become estranged. The son ran away, and the father set off to find him. He searched for months and had no luck. Finally, in a last desperate effort to find him, the father put an ad in, a, in the Madrid newspaper, and the ad read this way, Dear Paco, meet me in front of this newspaper office at noon on Saturday. All is forgiven. I love you, your father. On Saturday, 800 Pacos showed up looking for forgiveness and love from their fathers. How about you? Are you willing to prepare for this season by repenting of your sins? 
Are you willing to take time during the season to ask the Lord where you need to repent? There, that is a dangerous prayer, by the way, isn't it? Because it changes the course of our lives. So point three on your outline. The message of the gospel begins with brokenness in all phases of our lives. Brokenness between God and people, God and us. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Brokenness within each one of us. Each of us has a heart that is divided. A heart that doesn't desire what is truly good. Each of us are assailed by selfishness and pride. And then there is the third aspect of our brokenness. Brokenness between relationships between people. We experience brokenness in our relationships with one another. It's, by the way, it's often highlighted within our families, isn't it? Fallen, this is our fallen human condition. This is all of our condition. Sometimes it is this Christmas season that seems to bring out the worst in us. And only when we recognize that condition of brokenness are we prepared for the coming of God into our lives. Are we prepared for the coming of the Messiah born into our lives? Only when I recognize my desperate brokenness in every aspect of my life do I recognize my need for Jesus there, the Savior, to deliver me in those areas of life. Seeking forgiveness and reconciliation and transformation always begins with the recognition that there is something desperately wrong in that area of my life. An alcoholic doesn't look for help until they realize the destruction that alcohol is doing in their own lives and in the lives of the people they love. And so it's with each one of us in all the different areas of our lives. Now there's a, another key element in these events recorded by Luke. You know, uh, Zechariah and Elizabeth, these good people have lived with deep disappointment, never having the child they longed for. Elizabeth even refers to her childlessness as literally a disgrace in the Greek. They are both upright people. Not that they're sinless. Neither are they just outwardly pious, though, but that they are actively pursuing God's desires with their hearts and with their actions. In other words, their situation isn't the result of their own personal sins. They have prayed about their situation, and their prayer has now been answered. When the angel announces, do not be afraid, Zechariah, your prayer has been heard. Your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son, and you're to give him the name John. He will be a joy and a delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth. See, John the child is the answer to two prayers, isn't he? A child for Zechariah and Elizabeth, but also the answer to the prayers for God to save his people. God works simultaneously to answer both sets of prayers. You know, uh, as I was thinking about that, I was reminded of many years back when uh, Lynn and I were uh, living in Wichita, Kansas at the time. And at that time, we were prayerfully seeking a new call for a pastorate. I had uh, completed my, the process for ordination in the Presbyterian Church USA, 
and was uh, speaking with different congregations and search committees about their openings. Now, there happened to be a, a, a church in Kiowa, Colorado, which was a town about an hour outside of Denver that had contacted us, and they were very interested in calling me as a pastor. I'd grown up in the Denver area, so I uh, arranged with the pastor of my former Presbyterian church there, where I'd grown up, to uh, have me preach there uh, during that time so that the search committee from Kiowa could come down and meet our family and hear me preach in person. So I preached that Sunday and met with their search committee right afterwards. Now that uh, call didn't turn out to be the answer to our prayers. And it wasn't the answer to the search committee's prayers either. But in speaking to a couple of people in my home church, I learned that our being there was an answer to someone else's prayer. It was a message that someone desperately needed to hear. And I also learned from some of the uh, seniors in that church that they had been uh, praying for me ever since I was a young child. They were praying that the Lord would call me to full-time ministry, which would have been an insane prayer if you knew me as a child. You know, we don't often know how God works out His providential plans or exactly how He is at work in our prayers or whose prayers are being answered at a particular time. But we do know that our faithful and holy God is the one who is ultimately at work. See, Elizabeth and Zechariah represent two different kinds of righteous people. On the one hand, there's Elizabeth. She takes her burdens to the Lord in prayer. She rejoices when that burden is lifted. and God has shown His favor upon her, and she responds with rejoicing. She wasn't bitter or angry at her condition. She never acts like a victim. Do you notice that? Zechariah, on the other hand, is a little different. He reacts with doubt. How could God actually act in this way? How can this promise be fulfilled? We're too old. Sometimes even good people have doubts about God's promises. I... uh, recently uh, read a prosperity gospel teacher's message about uh, Zechariah and Elizabeth. And what he was, uh, his basic message was is that he was blaming them for their childless condition. See, his uh, views were based in a, in a common belief system that is uh, spread on so-called Christian networks. And it's a belief system that is sold as Christian, but is actually rooted in pagan new thought movements. It's called the law of attraction. Here's the common thinking. God is spirit and he dwells in everything and the thoughts of our spirit can cause God to make our wishes a reality, consciously or subconsciously, for good or for bad. Our thoughts and beliefs dictate reality. Our physical condition including our health, success, and wealth, is the direct result of what we expect. If we're wealthy, it's because we believe we should be. When our spirit or thoughts concentrate on something, like like health or a new Porsche or 
some new car or a new house, that part of God that is in that thing is naturally drawn to us. The ill are ill because their minds are deceived. Right thinking alters the electrical impulses in the brain to become well again. The poor are poor because they're pessimistic. And their pessimistic thoughts attract poverty. Now in this thinking, since God indwells everything, and if we concentrate on what we want, God will have no choice but to bring that part of himself to us. Prosperity gospel, word of faith preachers, claim that illness, poverty, and any other negative life experience is really just due to our lack of faith in God. If we don't trust God to give us money and health, He won't do it. So, uh, let me be very clear. This popular law of attraction theology is purely pagan, and it has nothing to do with biblical Christianity. In fact, the message of Luke regarding Zechariah and Elizabeth and John is the exact opposite of this horrible paganism that is so often spread under the name of Christianity. The angel tells Zechariah to just shut up for a while and watch God work. So he's given a sign. He'll be silenced until God fulfills his promise. Zechariah becomes temporarily mute. And the message is sent not just to Zechariah, but also to the crowds that come during the offering. For in Christ's time, when the priest comes out, they would conclude the worship time with these words from the book of Numbers. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord, turns his, the Lord turn His face toward you and give you peace. But instead of receiving that blessing, they get silence. The silence is a sign given by God. Not just to Zechariah and Elizabeth, but also to all of Israel. And for those with spiritual eyes to understand, this sign is to be a pointer to another key message given us here. And that is that God will bring His promises to pass. God will keep His promises. Be prepared for His messenger. And this brings up, I think, another key aspect to preparing ourselves for the season of Advent. It is to be reminded of the faithfulness of our God. See, God doesn't fail. We often fail even when our intentions are good. There have been times when I've not been able to keep my well-intentioned promises to my family or my friends because of my own weaknesses, my own failures, or because of circumstances. But God never fails. And so this is point four on your outline. And it's this. God does not leave, forsake, or neglect His people. I'm betting that many, if not all of you today, have experienced loved ones who have left, neglected, or forsaken you. 
But let me assure you, God never will. The Lord is with us in good times and bad, and if you have trusted Him as your Savior, Jesus promises never to leave you nor forsake you. He has bound Himself to us. The preacher of Hebrews writes this in 13 verse 5, Be content with the things as you have, for He has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And so do you need a word of encouragement today? I want you to remember the greatest encouragement. The presence of Jesus with you. Begin to remind yourself of His presence with you day by day, hour by hour, moment by moment. You can be strengthened. You can be encouraged. You can be filled with joy as you remind yourself consistently of His faithful presence in your life. The one who is completely adequate to all the challenges, all the trials, all the tragedies that occur in our lives is always with us. He's always going before us, always following after and always walking beside us. Our faithful God is always faithful to His promises. You know, uh, recently I read about a missionary named Gladys Alward who was serving as a missionary in China before World War II. And when the Japanese army invaded northern China, she was forced to flee Yangsheng, taking with her 100 orphans. She uh, led the orphans into the mountains. Eventually, she came to the place of despair of ever making it to safety. After a sleepless night, she was reminded by one of those orphans a 13-year-old girl, about Moses and the parting of the Red Sea. She turned to the girl and she said, but I'm not Moses. The little girl said, of course you aren't, but God is still God. Do you know and truly trust that God is always faithful this morning? Do you believe that God is still God Do you believe the God who came to Zechariah is still the same God today? The God who is providentially active in the life of His people then is the same God who is providentially active in the life of Parkway Presbyterian Church today. A small boy was flying a kite high in the sky when it drifted into a cloud bank and disappeared from view. A passerby asked the little boy what he was doing. Well, I'm flying my kite, the child responded. The man looked up and seeing only the cloud bank said, I don't see any kite. How do you know it's still there? I don't see it either, replied the boy. But I know it's up there because every once in a while there's a tug on my string. See, this message of Luke The promise of the child John, the silence of Segariah, the message of Christmas of a child born in Bethlehem, these are all tugs on our strings. The tug of a personal, present, promise-keeping, faithful God. This is point five on your outline, and it's a simple question. Do you feel his tug? 
You know, I uh, spent the first few months of my ministry here with you preaching on prayer. Prayer that uh, leads to revival, to revitalization. Why? Because I am absolutely convinced that our Lord desires for there to be revival and revitalization here at Parkway Presbyterian Church. I am. And during this Advent season, I'm imploring you. I'm begging you to continue to prayerfully seek the Lord for one another. To lift one another up in prayer. Prayers that our brothers and sisters here might know the empowerment of the Holy Spirit in their lives, that the Lord might equip each one of us to minister to one another and to our community in His love and grace. And I ask you to prayerfully invite your neighbors, your friends, your co-workers to join us as we experience His revival and His revitalization in this place. The season reminds us of the radical and revolutionary preparation that is required. It begins in our hearts and in our minds and in our spirits. Today is just another tug. A tug at the string of your hearts and minds through God's infallible Word. It's a tug. A tug of a personal, present, promise-keeping, faithful God. Because that's what Advent is meant to be in our lives. Do you feel that tug this morning? I pray that you do. Let's pray together. Gracious and merciful and loving God, What a joy it is to be able to affirm with my brothers and sisters here this morning of your presence, your powerful, life-changing presence, your presence of reconciliation, of forgiveness, of love. Thank you, Lord, for your amazing presence in our lives. Thank you that you are here this morning, that you are at work in our midst, that you are active in our hearts. It is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.